Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thank you and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone with a serious interest in the war today understands that the war was fundamentally about slavery. But in the next breath, we say that, of course, that doesn't mean the North was fighting the war to end slavery, at least not until 1863 in the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, tonight, we'll hear a challenge to that received wisdom from Professor James Oakes, author of Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 to 1865. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a cold Wednesday evening in December 2013 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. But with campus almost closed up as we approach the end of the semester, I'm not speaking for the university, nor will my guest speak for his or anybody else. Every person for himself, as always, here at Civil War Talk Radio. Because as we heard in the uh, ad leading up to the show, we live in an insane world, a crazy world. And uh, nothing like 1861, but I suppose there are times when the news does make it sound like things are getting uh, quite up to that point, certainly uh, uh, things seem that way sometimes from the vantage here at the Brewster Building. This past week has been one of working on our departmental self-study. I know everyone's interested in this the way I am, uh, but we're going to have some professors from an other university come take a look at our program next semester which in itself is a good thing. You want to have your peers see how you're doing. Assessment is valuable in that sense. But the professional uh, administrative bureaucrats who who prepared the um, 20-page, 100-point report we're supposed to write, uh, 
have no idea what we do, of course, and they, it's a one-size-fits-all document, so I'm kind of skipping through and answering it the way I think they should have written it, and they're going to have a, a conniption when they see the report I turn in because it doesn't uh, do the things they want to do. The two-line phrase, describe the nature of your discipline, for example. Really? Describe history in two lines? I don't think so. Um, it's It's just the bureaucratic educational world gone berserk, but we're accustomed to that by now. In happier news, this week uh, I've become locally famous for the show as our uh, college uh, PR person wrote a story about it and sent it to the local news service. And since then, for the last several days, uh, I've had people on campus asking me about it, and I've discovered it's really difficult to tell people what this is. Uh, I say it's a podcast, although the word podcast wasn't invented when the show began in, in 2004. Um, it was meant to be internet live radio, and now most people don't listen live, they download, so I guess it's, it's actually a podcast after all. But a surprising number of people have no idea what that means. Uh, and after you explain the whole thing, they say, so what station is it on? When can I listen? You can listen anytime. Then uh, you have to start over. It's not worth it. Well, you're listening now, obviously, uh, people in the sound of this voice. So let's stop talking about the show, uh, except to say who's going to be on next before we forget. It's our last show of the fall semester. We're going to take a break, come back in January, on January 15th with Christopher White, author of Chancellorville's, I say that wrong each time, Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front. Uh, the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, later in the month, Frank Varney will be back to talk about uh, Grant's memoirs and their uh, assault on Rosecrans. We'll have Martin Johnson with a new book on the Gettysburg Address in February. Uh, in March, Richard Slotkin will be with us. He has an interesting uh, take on the road to Antietam. So a lot of people uh, coming up in the... Uh, weeks ahead and months ahead, but we'll take a break between now and January 15th, so uh, relax and enjoy that time, and we'll be back then. You can follow it all, as always, on www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Companion website. You can buy your Christmas gifts there, click on the Amazon link, and some of the pennies flow through and support that website, and you can also donate money to me to buy my Christmas presents. Uh, through the website if you want to do that. But mostly you can find out who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show. You can download the shows from there and otherwise keep track of what's going on. Well, enough uh, metadata about the show about the show. Let's get to tonight's topic, Freedom National, the destruction of slavery in the, in the United States, 1861 to 1865. is a new book by James Oakes. Uh, Jim, are you there? I'm here. Ah, welcome to the show. Well, well, welcome back you. to the good. show, I should say. It's good to be here. Good it to be back good. talking to you. Yes, it was. You were on the show in in 2010. I'd I'd forgotten about that. I was looking in my notes tonight, and um, there's an informal five year no repeat rule, so we don't have the same folks on every every month. But uh, this book demanded that you you get back on without waiting uh, a couple more years. So. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. I'm glad glad you're able to do this. Uh, how uh, you're uh, in New York right now? Yes, I am. 
And it's and probably a lot colder here than it is where you are. I'll bet. We're, we, well, we get down to 30 and people just go berserk. Uh, All right. We're, do you guys we're at 30 right snow? now. Uh, it, it's cold. Um, I was in Montana was, a few days ago. It was three below oh. when I woke up. <laughs> That's bad. So That's have you guys snowed in yet? Any snow no. in New York? No, uh, that good. hasn't happened. So far. A few dustings, but nothing like that. Very good. Well, as I said in the introduction, uh, there's a, you know, a, a a paradigm of how to explain the Civil War to undergrads or public audiences. That, of course, the war was about slavery. Uh, you don't find people contesting that outside of. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there are enthusiasts who have their their views, but. Uh, but serious people will say, of course, slavery is the fundamental underlying cause of the separation and the war. The next line is always, though, that, uh, but at first the North was fighting for union. Uh, Lincoln's very clear in the first inaugural. Uh, the Republicans uh, and Lincoln constantly say, we have no power to abolish slavery. Uh, right. They offer up a 13th Amendment that would keep slavery intact. And the the premise of your book is to start by saying that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's uh, wrong. Okay. <laughs> so what's right then? Uh, well, let's go what, oh, what's right? You want me to, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, uh, I'll, I'll let you know when we get to 45 minutes. Well, one of the, the, the most familiar quotations in that scenario that you just described is the statement, as you mentioned, in Lincoln's inaugural address, in which he says, I have no intention to interfere with slavery in the states where it already exists. And what I discovered was that that was a pro forma denial on the part of all anti-slavery people, including radical abolitionists, uh, who understood that in 1787 the founders had made a set, of, a set of compromises with slavery that prevented the federal government from directly abolishing slavery in a state where it already existed. Uh, and m- almost all abolitionists accepted that premise uh, uh, and so did virtually I mean virtually everyone in the United States except for a, a tiny handful of one radical, radical abolitionist faction um, and so the question arises well then how did the abolitionists accept, expect to get slavery abolished if the federal government couldn't do it and what I discovered was that uh, beginning in the 1830s they had uh, they carefully developed a a, pro- a set of proposals for federal policy that would uh, limit slavery to the states where it already existed, surround slavery with what they called a cordon of freedom uh, on the high seas, uh, in the northern states, and above all in the western territories. And, uh, and this cordon would gradually force the slave states to abolish slavery on their own for a number of different reasons. They had a number of different scenarios by which that would happen. Until, in the most popular metaphor of the day, until, like a scorpion girt by fire, slavery would ultimately sting itself to death. Uh, That's the metaphor that you hear over and over again in Republican speeches and in the speeches of secessionists. They understood that this was the project. They are not going to come down here 
and directly abolish slavery. They're going to surround us like a scorpion until like a, you know, with this cordon of freedom until like a scorpion surrounded by fire, they will, uh, we will, they will force us to emancipate the slaves ourselves. That's the understanding. Uh, no, that's that, that's the reason the South metaphor. seceded. Excuse me? But th- that metaphor, the scorpion, I, I, let me just interrupt you about that. How, how did both abolitionists and slaveholders imagine that actually working out? That what, so, okay, there's three states up north or out west. Why can't Virginia continue to have slavery for 200 years? There are a number of different ways in which they, they did it. Uh, one of them is based on the, uh, almost all of them are based on the assumption that slavery itself is intrinsically weak or certainly incapable on its own of surviving in a free competition with uh, the more dynamic system of free labor that they had in the North. And that the only thing keeping slavery from dying what Lincoln called a natural death was the disproportionate influence that slaveholders consistently exercised in the federal government to protect slavery, to allow it to expand, to continually, uh, you know, uh, 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 force the northern states to participate in the capture and return of fugitive slaves, go out onto the high seas and protect slaves, slave ships from, you know, or take the side of the slaveholders when slaves rebel, refuse to participate with Great Britain in the suppression of the Atlantic slave trade, and above all, allow it continually to expand into fresh soil of the Western territories, so that uh, what normally ought to have happened, which, uh, let's say, the what had begun to happen in the late 18th century as one state after another began abolishing slavery, should have continued continued to happen, but for the disproportionate power the slaveholders began to exercise in the federal government to, to use federal power to artificially keep slavery alive. So their scenarios were vague, uh, uh, but it, generally speaking, involved uh, what they presumed to be the weakness of slavery in the border states. Right? Slavery is weakest up in Maine, and it takes the longest to get it abolished in the middle states. It doesn't quite work in Delaware, and then it's it's weakest in the slave states in those border states. And if, for example, uh, the northern states are absolved of any responsibility for participating in the capture and return of fugitive slaves, slaveholders in the border states will pull back from the border states and move further south, but they will not be able to move onto western soils, and gradually slavery will, those slaveholders in those states will continue to sell their surplus slaves down to the deep south, and slavery will gradually wither and die in the border states until the until the cordon moves further south, and then you've squeezed the slave states further, and and that sort of thing. Until well, gradually, one by one, eventually, all the slave states will do what they should have been doing all along, which was, uh, you know, abolishing slavery as they come to realize that it 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 is both politically disruptive, socially unstable, and economically uh, economically uh, inefficient. Now, one of the things you didn't emphasize in the book that I was curious about was the economic argument that Virginia and Maryland had exhausted their uh, their right. soils with, with tobacco 
right. culture, and thus they eventually didn't have enough work for the slaves to do, and they began selling them west and south. Right. Uh, and that, that I've seen elsewhere the argument that both the, the southern planters and the abolitionists alike agreed slavery had to expand because of the very or nature of, right. of, of cotton cotton uh, right. agriculture. It was cheaper to buy new land than to treat your land carefully. Right. So it had and to And there had expanding. been a steady... I mean, the, the eastern states, especially the northeastern states of the south, the upper south, Maryland, uh, Virginia, had been selling large numbers of slaves over the decades into mm-hmm. the southwestern states. Otherwise, there's no place for them to get those slaves. Uh, so, so the assumption on the... Uh, uh, on the part of anti-slavery people was that that process would be would not only continue but would accelerate uh, once this cordon of freedom were established and the federal government were no longer was no longer consistently protecting the slavery interests and instead was consistently promoting uh, freedom everywhere outside the South, making freedom national rather than slavery national. That's a good point to uh, take a pause on because that that's the heart of certainly a bunch of. of first half of the book, that argument. Uh, So we're going to take a short break. Uh, We're talking today with James Oakes, author of Freedom National. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jim Oakes. He's the author of Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 
1861 to 1865. We were talking in our first segment about the abolitionist uh, theory in the pre-war years of drawing a cordon of freedom around the South to eliminate slavery without direct federal interference because, uh, Jim, as you noted, that was uh, widely accepted uh, by by Republicans, anti-slavery uh and, and pro-slavery alike. Everybody, uh, you, right. You can't touch slavery where it exists. You can't where go in and do something. So but to, you to just put the final sure. emphasis on that point, which goes back to the original question you asked, when Lincoln or Thaddeus Stevens or Benjamin Wade or Charles Sumner or any anti-slavery radical or any mainstream anti-slavery Republican says, I have no intention of interfering with slavery or abolishing slavery in a state where it already exists, it does not you cannot take that to mean there is no anti-slavery agenda because every one of the proposals that's involved in the construction of a cordon of freedom does, involves no direct interference in the states where slavery already exists. They will abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. They will suppress it on the high seas. They will return enforcement of the fugitive slave cause to the southern states themselves. They will ban slavery from the western territories. They will not allow any new slave states to come into the Union. They will do all those things without actually directly abolishing slavery in a state where it already exists. So again, to emphasize the point, when you read that statement that Lincoln makes in his, in his inaugural address, you cannot conclude from that that he did not understand that the Civil War was caused by slavery or that he did not intend or Republicans did not intend to, to pursue policies designed to put slavery on the course of ultimate extinction. Now, let me ask a legalistic question. The, sure. the southern, southern response to everything you just said would be, well, you are interfering. Uh, yeah. If I want to take my, my horse and wagon out to Nebraska and you allow people to take it from me, you're not protecting my property. Right. Uh, I have a property right that the government is obliged to uphold. Right. How do the abolitionists get around this argument that there's a right of, of property involved, that the slaveholders ought to be allowed to go west into the territories if they want to? Well, they read the Constitution differently. They they read the Constitution as as saying uh, as as saying that that uh, slaves are defined not as property but as persons held to service. That's a very specific kind of language that anyone at the time from the late 18th century would have recognized as language coming from the famous anti-slavery decision handed down by uh, uh, Lord Mansfield, the Somerset decision of 1772, the denial that slaves, that there's a property right that could, that, that attaches to the master in, in his, in his claim on the slave, that all he could claim is the service to the, of the person to labor. And when Lincoln gives his his famous speech at, uh, at Cooper Union in 1860, he distills several generations worth of anti-slavery legal thinking that insisted that uh, the right of property that you're talking about is what, what Salmon Chase called a naked legal right. That is to say, a state statute has created that right, but there is no constitutional right. The Constitution does not recognize slaves as property. It recognizes them only as persons held to service. And therefore, there is no property issue involved in the federal government's attempt to restrict the uh, expansion of slavery into the Western territories. I, I thought that was one of the most interesting points because uh, uh, 
everybody again will will remember that slavery the word does not appear in the constitution and lincoln right. famously explained it was you know intentionally hidden away because the founding fathers thought slavery would die out but you make the point that it's it's not just that although that's it's not part just of it, that that's right but the, it's not I, just the idea that, that it's uh, uh, the the persons held to service or labor uh, i mean children are are held to the service of their parents, but nobody considers children property. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so it's very critical that the founding fathers called these enslaved people persons held to service right. and in not fact, slaves. In fact, there's a remarkable exchange in the Constitutional Convention I quote in my book between uh, 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 Roger Sherman and James Madison. Uh, they object to a clause in the Constitution that would have allowed the federal government to put a $10 tax on every slave imported into the into the United States on the grounds that it implied that the slaves were property, and Sherman says he does not want anything in the Constitution that recognizes the legitimacy of of property in man. And Madison gets up and says, "You're absolutely right. There should be no acknowledgement of the legitimacy of property in man anywhere in this Constitution." And, it wasn't and that, so. It wasn't just that they were embarrassed to leave it out. Right. They very carefully chose language that everyone at the time understood to have a specific meaning, which is that they are not, it is not legitimate to, to, and to hold one human being as property, for one so, human being to hold another as property. So, so freedom national Im- implies that freedom is both national and natural. It is the, the natural yes. state of humankind. And exactly. Anywhere the Constitution operates, positive that's the law. This is the Somerset argument, right? This mm-hmm. is, it takes a positive law like a state statute or a treaty or something, to overrule the natural right presumption which is embedded in the Constitution that everyone is free. And in the absence of such laws, as in the Western territories or on the high seas, the, everyone is presumptively free. So the, if, if a southern state wants to make a law that says people own other people or they own their children or dogs right. can vote or anything they want to say, they right. can do that. They can do but it. it. But it but does you can't not, make it go beyond your borders. There's no extraterritorial power in that. The Constitution doesn't protect you beyond the borders of the state. It now, simply that's says not how we can't go into in the, the 1850s, though. Excuse me? Uh, right. But in the 1850s, the, the tide's going the other way. You've got the Fugitive Slave Act and, of course, Dred Scott. Exactly. Well, this is, uh, where the, this is precisely where the irreconcilable conflict comes down to. Uh, you know, is there or is there not a right of property, a constitutional right of property in slaves? Are slaves protected as property the way all other forms of property are protected? And the Southern position by the 1850s, it's the position all along, but it hardens by the 1850s to the point where it's an absolute right that the government not only recognizes, but has has an obligation to protect. This right of property goes wherever the slaveholder goes. This is the reason why Lincoln said all we need is one more decision after the Dred Scott decision, because the logic of the absolutist right of property is that a state can't even override a, a right of property. If it's that basic, if it's that constitutional, any more than a state could pass a law saying we don't allow Christianity in this state, that would violate the Constitution. Right. And and so would, presumably, if you have an absolute right of property in slaves that obliges the federal government to protect that right in the territories, then by what logic can a state prevent someone from exercising that property right? So that that's certainly the scenario that uh, Republicans and Lincoln himself uh, expressed concern about. Right. Now, when the war begins, this 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 idea of the, the cordon of... of 
suddenly just blooms into life where you have right. Uh, right. abolitionists, uh, anti-slavery people, Lincoln among them, having already said, why would you want to secede? Because you didn't it's like only going to make f- it worse. We're, yeah, you, know, you, you didn't know, like the way we it, failed to enforce whatever the constitutional before. protection you had. You have under uh, you know uh, within the union, you lose the minute you leave, attempt to leave the union. Your laws, you go into a state of martial law, effectively you're in rebellion, and the federal government is no longer obliged to protect slavery in areas in rebellion. You're subject to a completely different federal assault, type of federal assault on slavery, and that is military emancipation. So, and that's the other angle that you you posit as, as the abolitionist attack that doesn't violate the Constitution. You've got the cordon of freedom, then right. you've also got the exception where the government can't actually interfere with slavery inside a state yes. due to military In, in the conditions of war, the, power, the War Powers Clause of the Constitution does endow the federal government with the power. And so, do, so, by the way, does the treaty-making clause of the Constitution. I mean, one of the things John Quincy Adams says, and in, 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 he's the first person to formulate this as a constitutional war power back in the 1830s and the 1840s, is that uh, if the United let's say we had a general rebellion in the southern states and Britain interceded, you know, in, on the side of the south or something, and it became a, a global conflagration, you know, mm-hmm. France jumps in to protect its interest in slavery in the Caribbean, and, and uh, you know, uh, England jumps in to protect its, the freedom, and, and, and the only way to suppress this war is by a treaty, and if the treaty the United States signs in the context of such a global conflagration says slavery shall be abolished in the state of Mississippi, there is nothing the state of Mississippi can do about it. Mm. The, 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 the war powers and treaty-making powers of the Constitution do override uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, federal consensus, the normal premise that in peacetime the federal government can't interfere with slavery in the states. Now, did this really get talked about that much? I mean, certainly when the war begins, obviously the war powers are, are paramount, but... Before it seems the Civil like War, kind of, kind no, a, because uh, the abolitionists, the anti-slavery people, the Republicans, weren't counting on a war to get mm-hmm. slavery abolished. They assumed that it was going to get abolished by means of peaceful means of the cordon of freedom. They all knew, everybody knew about military emancipation. This is uh, during the American Revolution. Both sides emancipated slaves as a military necessity. Right? We all know about the British doing it, but the truth is, so did the Americans. State after state offered slaves freedom in return for service in the Continental Army. Virginia freed 500 people, slaves, in return for service in the Continental Army. Right? The, the British freed thousands of slaves during the uh, the War of 1812, and the U.S. signed a treaty that acknowledged that all the slaves who had in fact, been carried off to Halifax, Nova Scotia, or the Bahamas, or to England, were in fact freed, and there was nothing the United States could do about it. Right? During the Seminole War, the United States freed hundreds of slaves in an attempt to suppress the Indian insurrection and promise them freedom if they would uh, move to the Western Territories, and it, and it kept the promise. Everybody knew about military emancipation. It was not part of the abolitionist project. It was not a radical move. It's something that belligerents do during wartime, in an effort to suppress a, war, a rebellion or win a war. So everybody knew about military emancipation, but it wasn't the abolitionist project. It's not what they're trying to do. So one of the, one of the things you hear 
most often in references to uh, military emancipation shows up most often in abolitionist and anti-slavery writings as a kind of, uh, oh, the South will never secede because then there will be military emancipation. But it's not their project. Go ahead. What's that? So so that, that, and that happens immediately. Immediately, uh, as soon as the South secedes. At Fort Monroe. There's an explosion of of threats of military emancipation all across all across the north among republicans because everybody knew about it but it wasn't part of the, you, you don't see it it's not it's you know the american anti-slavery society in the 1830s lists a series of things they think the federal government should do to attack slavery and they're all cordon of freedom type things right suppress slavery on the high seas sign a treaty with great britain abolish it in washington dc ban it from the territories the usual right the same thing but they don't say anything about military emancipation it's not there it's not in the Liberty Party platforms of 1840 and 1844. It's not in the Free Soil platform of 1848. It's not in the Republican Party platforms of 56 and 60. It's not in any of the state and local Republican Party platforms that I've ever seen. There's no, nobody is ever making reference to military emancipation. All the references are to the cordon of freedom. And yet, as soon as the South secedes, secession means war, and war means military emancipation, because war always means military emancipation. But what, what I found particularly fascinating about the book is, is your explanation of how that works out, because you know, Lincoln right. in the first inaugural does not say, I'm going to begin military emancipation, and indeed it's not federal right. policy. Uh, it's one of these, you know, it, it proves Clausewitz true, you know, war has a dynamic of its own when the three uh, right. Fugitives show up at Butler's right. door at Fort Monroe. Right, they got to do the something. The policy gets made right there on the ground. So you got to do something. That's right. So That's right. How how does that develop? Well, again, go, uh, you know, it is certainly true that these three slaves are crucial uh, actors in the process by which the North begins almost almost immediately after the war begins to uh, uh, emancipate slaves as a military necessity. It happens very swiftly. That happens in late May. Congress comes into session in July. And, uh, and within a couple of weeks, the Judiciary Committee uh, issues, uh, you, know, real, uh, you know, sends to the floor a, a uh, confiscation act. The chair of the Judiciary Committee, Lyman Trumbull, attaches an anti-slavery amendment to it. Uh, a military emancipation amendment to it, you know, uh, offering freedom to any slave used in the service of the rebellion. And two days after that law is passed, the Lincoln administration issues the instructions through the War Department to begin emancipating all slaves who come within Union lives from areas in rebellion. So just about as soon as it's possible for them to begin emancipating slaves as a military necessity, they begin emancipating slaves as a military necessity. Um, the, the first confiscation uh, act, though, is almost always portrayed <laughs> as this, you know, feckless and complex and, and yeah, right. essentially irrelevant uh, right. law. Uh, you don't see it that way. No, that was the big surprise. That was the turning point for me in writing this book was the first confiscation act. I I intended to write a book attempting to explain why it took so long to get slavery abolished, why the proclamation wasn't enough, why the, why most slaves were still slaves when the war ended. And that is still an important part of the book. And I started the book, I wrote a chapter on Fortress Monroe, just like you said, the three slaves come to Fortress Monroe, and the next chapter was about the 
First Confiscation Act, and I had read all the books. There were several recent books on the First Confiscation Act, and they all say exactly what you said. It doesn't do anything. It's just meaningless. It's toothless. and, and what's. So I, But it didn't tell me why they passed it and what they intended to do. So I said, well, let me take a look. And I, was, I, I went to the congressional debates, and I was astounded by the open discussion of, among all Republicans of their, their intention to begin emancipating slaves uh, 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 with that law. And there, they had. They, uh, and I, I thought, and the Democrats are in Congress, and the border state people, or slaveholders, are in Congress, fuming at what the Republicans are saying. And they passed the law. Over all Republicans vote for it. It's virtually a unanimous vote. Lincoln signs it and and puts it into practice. And that was so completely new to me. It was so completely shocking that only at that point did I say, well, they can't have begun talking this way in July of 1861. It must have come early. So I went back and I looked at the secession stuff. And then that chapter got written. And then I said to myself, well, they can't have begun talking this way in the the secession winter of 1860-61. So I went back. And as you know, I ended up all the way back in the 18th century uh, tracing the origins of these anti-slavery ideas. so it was the first confiscation act that transformed the book. And then from that point on, I had to say, well, uh, how does, it's no longer a question of how does the war go from being uh, about union to being about emancipation. It's how does anti-slavery policy evolve over the course of the war from the, uh, the clear but limited uh, use of emancipation in the first confiscation act to the universal emancipation of the proclamation uh, in January 63. Well, this is a good place to take a break. We'll start with that question. How does it go from point A to point B? We're talking today with James Oakes, author of Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 to 1865. I'm Jerry and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with James Oaks. We're discussing his book, Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery During the Civil War. Uh, Jim, one thing I want to say is that your book designer did a really nice job on this. The, the book is almost 500 pages of text, but it was not hard to read because the line spacing is really nice. It's, oh, I it's, demanded it. <laughs> But they did. They, they responded. They were, it's, it's, and it's, it's physically beautiful, isn't it? They did a very it nice is. job. It, they did it, a very nice job. Yeah, yeah. They were very responsive. And I said it, that. Uh, so I you didn't asked want me to, to do the big big line spacing. I I said I wanted a bigger typeface than than they had used for my last book, and wow. they agreed. They did it. They just, they did it for the next one too. They sent me galleys for the next book that I've got that's coming out in the spring and I said the typeface is too small and they sent back bigger typeface so but what's the next topic uh, it's well it's it's it comes out of this book it's based on the lectures I gave at LSU earlier this year along with some other stuff and it's called the scorpion sting so it uh, it elaborates on some of the points I make a little more stuff about uh, uh, racial conflict in, in the period, the relationship between slavery and race and anti-slavery thinking, and a very long chapter on uh, the history of the laws of war and their relationship to uh, its relationship to slavery. Well, I will definitely look forward to that. It's Let a much shorter you, book. Uh, well, those those lecture books often are, are delightfully readable. They're they're fun to. Well, uh, I hope so. I hope go so. through, but this, uh, you know, I. I read a book each week and some weeks I look at the expansive pages still in my right hand and I think, oh boy, that's, I'll, uh, I'll have right. to get through this by Wednesday night. Right. Uh, right. Not this one. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I'd like to think it's things. more than just the typeface. Well, it, that the typeface helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what you're surprised about finding the first Confiscation Act having the impact, uh, you know, was a surprise for me and, and will be for most readers. Uh, Likewise, uh, let me leap ahead to the Second Confiscation Act. Uh, One of the classic received wisdom pieces everybody knows is that Lincoln didn't issue the Emancipation Proclamation right away. Partly he's waiting for public opinion to move ahead. Partly he's evolving his own understanding of the Constitution and his own war powers as commander-in-chief. Right. Uh, What rarely gets pointed out is that the Second Confiscation Act expressly authorizes the president to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And within two days of it being passed, Lincoln drafts the proclamation and reads it to his cabinet. Exactly. Why does everybody know that? I continue to be flummoxed (laughs) by the various efforts of historians to explain, at what point did Lincoln decide to emancipate the slaves? Well, after Congress (laughs) authorized (laughs) him to do so. (laughs) It, it, It... I mean, you have an interesting section where you talk about myth-making and how even right. 
while the war is still underway, uh, the the historical understanding of where emancipation came from starts to evolve. Right. Uh, but, right. but Lincoln plays such a huge central part in it that in the myth making itself, yes. In the myth making that that we yes. don't see that Congress told the president, yes, you should, right. you, you and, may, and, and indeed should issue a proclamation. And it's something and, Congress regularly did, because in those days, yes. Congress was only in session for a few months a year, and it often passed laws that said this law will go into effect when the president issues a proclamation. Right? It had done that with slavery a, a month earlier in another law that said uh, uh, the, all slaves uh, in areas in rebellion will be taxed, you know, and 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 if the taxes aren't paid, they will be. The, the slaves will be subject to forfeiture, and the president must issue a proclamation declaring which areas are in rebellion. And he does that in June. Uh, uh, he issues a proclamation declaring the areas that are in rebellion for the purpose of confiscating slaves whose taxes aren't paid. A month before the second, con- they did it again in this Confiscation Act. You know, they they passed the West Virginia statehood law saying West Virginia can enter the state as a state when the president issues a proclamation declaring that it has in fact abolished slavery, and which he does. He issues the proclamation a year or so later. <laughs> so they're always passing just, laws requiring presidential proclamations. This was one. This was one of them. So when you also address the uh, the the argument that. When the proclamation is issued, it uh, didn't free a single slave. Uh, right. we, we've all heard that. Right. Um, you you make it clear that that's not the case here. But yeah. But well, we'll go ahead. Why well, it, in in policy terms, there's, there's there's what it does in policy terms, and what it does in practical terms. Uh, in policy terms, it alters it it. It, it does one broad thing generally, which is to say, with the Second Confiscation Act, Congress expanded emancipation to be universal. Right? All military emancipations up until that point were basically efforts to win wars and suppress rebellions. And the First Confiscation Act falls into line with that traditional pattern. When in 1775, Lord Dunmore issues a proclamation offering freedom to slaves who come and fight for the British, he's not intending to abolish slavery. When the Americans offer freedom to slaves who fight in the Continental Army, they're not intending to abolish slavery, nor were the British intending to do that during the War of 1812, nor were the Americans during the Seminole War. And, and emancipation, while the people, while the Republicans in Congress hate slavery and make it clear that they're very happy to begin attacking slavery in the summer of 1861, they still don't see military emancipation as the primary means of destroying slavery. The second Confiscation Act, once it is implemented by the president, makes military emancipation universal. It will apply to all slaves in areas in rebellion. That's millions of slaves, and it will, it's become a weapon of, uh, of abolition, in effect. Emancipation is being used to abolish slavery for the first time. And that's, that's what the proclamation implements, that policy, in broad terms. And that's a novel use of military emancipation in American history. In practical terms, on the ground, it does two things. One of them very familiar. It it opens the Union Army to the enlistment of black troops, eventually 180,000 of whom of them of whom serve in the Union Army, and to uh, and lead Lincoln and Grant and others to conclude that their service was indispensable to Union victory. Um, 
And the second thing is that it lifts the ban on enticement. Now, most people don't know what this means. I never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. But if you go back and look at the way the instructions were given to General Butler at Fortress Monroe in May of 1861 and the way the instructions came from the War Department after the first Confiscation Act, uh, uh, Union soldiers in the South are authorized to emancipate slaves who come within their lines by whatever means, but they are not allowed to go on to peacefully functioning plantations and entice slaves off. What the Emancipation Proclamation does is lift the ban on enticement, and from that moment you begin to see orders coming from the War Department, orders coming from generals to their uh, their subordinates saying, the, the character of the war has changed from now on, you must go and bring in all the slaves you can. And, and in fact, several hundred, a uh, couple of hundred Agents are assigned by the Union Army to actually go onto plantations and entice slaves off to come into the Union Army, tell them that they're emancipated and the like. And that, that, that is the second practical effect of the Emancipation Proclamation. On the ground, it lifts the ban on enticement. Now, you, you said you started writing this book with the thought of talking about how many slaves weren't emancipated by the end of the war. And uh, to take it a step further, emancipation and abolition are two different things. You can free every slave without, without changing slavery. the laws. Right. The law, right. Slavery is still the law of the land. It's just right. there's no individuals under it at this moment. Right. Uh, and Lincoln's aware of that, and the Republicans you, you show are aware of that. They get nervous right. after Gettysburg and Vicksburg because the Union right. might win uh, yeah. before this Before most slaves are emancipated. Right. So right. the... Uh, the Thirteenth Amendment, which is the, uh, the the of course the the main plot line of the the Lincoln movie that uh, all right. our listeners have seen by now, right. uh, plays a big role in your book. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's, it's a critical it's, moment. It's a critical moment. It's the, it comes when the Republicans realize that the two policies that have been in place uh, for over a year, uh, military emancipation and the cordon of freedom, which we haven't talked about, but which was in fact implemented on steroids thanks to the war. Actually, the, the, the war allows the Republicans to pursue that policy much, much more aggressively than they could have in peacetime, and they do pursue it. But neither of them is working. By late 1863, as you say, after Vicksburg and Gettysburg, it looks you know, uh, more and more like the Union is going to win the war, but no slave states have yet abolished slavery, and, and only a fraction of the slaves have been physically actually emancipated. And nobody knows what going to happen when the war is over you know as we said back at the beginning slavery is a state institution and the assumption was that when the constitution is restored to its peacetime status control over slavery would revert to the states and those states could re-enslave people it was the official policy of the confederacy from the beginning to re-enslave all those who had escaped or even slaves who had joined the union army were by official policy, re-enslaved once they came back into the hands of the Confederates. Southerners in the, from the free states, in, from the border states in, uh, who stayed in the Union were openly threatening that this is, was, was going to happen. And the only solution the Republicans could come up with by, uh, by early 1864 was to change the Constitution and say, you know what, to hell with the federal consensus. We, the only way to prevent the cause of the war from surviving the war is to simply rewrite the Constitution and ban slavery everywhere, abolish slavery everywhere. 
You mentioned so the border states. It wasn't a mopping up operation. The Emancipation Proclamation did not make that inevitable. Mm-hmm. It made it possible. It created the political conditions in which people could accept the idea of universal emancipation, uh, but it, it did not logically and inevitably lead to the dis- complete destruction of slavery. Another step had to be taken, another major step, a third policy. Had and that to be stuff was not inevitable either, because uh, and that wasn't inevitable either, right? No, it was. It was a close, close run thing. And your your description uh, uh, again, uh, people who've seen uh, the the Lincoln movie and want to be assured that yeah, that that's not just drama that uh, Spielberg wrote in there. It was really a it close was very vote. real. It was very, it was uh, very close. If Lincoln, had, it's not so much Lincoln. I mean, the movie makes Lincoln the centerpiece of the mm-hmm. of the successful. Uh, passage of the 13th Amendment. Uh, and there are other ways in which his importance is slighted, but in that way, I think it's exaggerated. That is, mm-hmm. the, the thing that mattered in the 1864 elections was that the House, that in the House of Representatives, the Republicans got the two-thirds majority back. Mm-hmm. And once that happened, it was going to be inevitable that finally that they would get a 13th Amendment through. Uh, Lincoln was just new, pushing new it early. They wouldn't meet till December of '65. So. Now Lincoln had indicated that he would call it into special session as soon as the other Congress went out of session in March, so it wouldn't have waited that long. I do okay. think it was crucial politically for a number of reasons for them to get that out before Lee surrendered. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't waiting for they were waiting for Lee to surrender by that point, but um, before the war ended, because well, they had yeah. always justified the attacks on slavery as a military necessity, as something you needed. This was the reason we're having a war. The only reasonable way to end this and make sure the war doesn't come back is to, uh, is to destroy slavery forever. Well, I think they wanted that we, war. We, we got still to the end of the on. war, but unfortunately, we got to the end of our show too. <laughs> uh, we are out of time. It always happens too quickly. Uh, but listeners, we have just scratched the surface. This is a book you'll want to read. It is uh, uh, eye-opening and uh, will give you something to uh, argue with people at the next Civil War roundtable meeting you go to or anywhere else. Uh, uh, Really an interesting book, Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 to 1865. Uh, Jim, a pleasure talking with you. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Take it easy, Jerry. Bye. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.